0: In this podcast, we're talking about sex in an explicit and honest way. You might hear the occasional bit of strong language. It's also worth mentioning that I'm a survivor of sexual assault, so this is something I'll be mentioning throughout the series. Please be kind to yourself while listening. If you'd like to find out more about this topic or are looking for support for any of the themes discussed, check the episode description for resources and helplines. How did you first discover pleasure? I once went on a little date
1: with someone that's 16 and we played chase. And it was autumn and it was full of leaves. And he just used to stuff leaves all down my top with consent, of course. When I really started to enjoy getting my pussy out, a lot,
2: I'd right humped someone and had been like, oh, that felt nice. I remember the first time I had an orgasm, I was like, okay, interesting. It was all ceremonial every time for a long time. Damien Rice, check.
3: Lava lamp, check. My first conscious memory of pleasure is being about four or five years old, and I ate my grandmother's pot roast for the first time in my life. It was very simple food that she cooked, but you could taste the love. And so... Now I know that what I was experiencing was not just the pleasure of the delicious food, but actually receiving the emotional and physical labor of my grandmother via my taste buds.
0: And my first experience was at Wavelengths. It's a swimming pool in Deptford, around the corner from where I grew up. And as a kid, I went there most Saturday mornings. There was a section of the pool that had those bubbly jets that you get in hot tubs, and it was always really fun to play in them. I used to love filling my swimming costume up and feeling it balloon around me. And then one day, the jet hit a different part of my body, a little further south, and it was a sensation that I was pretty into. I guess that's where it all began. I'm Ruby Rare. I'm a sex educator and author, and this is In Touch, a documentary series offering an intimate and playful education around the different ways that we connect to sex, relationships, and our bodies. Pleasure is such a broad topic, one that I believe should impact all areas of our life. Yet there's so much shame about the things that bring us pleasure. We're living in a society that values us limiting or controlling the amount of pleasure we experience. And relishing in pleasure, whether that's sexual or not, has been such a joy for me over the past few years.
3: So that's what we're going to be ending this series on. When people talk about pleasure, they talk about how important pleasure is, pleasure is your birthright, pleasure, pleasure, pleasure. What they don't say is how to pleasure. When it comes to
0: understanding sexual pleasure, there's really only one place to start. Dr. Emily Nagoski. Emily has been an icon in the sex research and sex positivity fields for years. She's the author of several books, but most notably, Come As You Are which explores the science behind sexuality.
3: Pleasure is actually more subtle and complicated. It's not as easy as just touch me here, don't touch me that way. Pleasure emerges as an experience when we create a context that allows our brain to interpret the sensation as a sexy, pleasurable sensation. In the wrong context, that same sensation may be experienced as pain. And both are correct. It's just how our brains interpret sensation depends on the context.
0: Like with all topics we're covering this series, language is really important. We tend to use words like pleasure, arousal, and desire interchangeably. When it turns out, they have very different meanings.
3: Let's start with arousal because it is the simplest. The mechanism in your brain that controls sexual response is the dual control mechanism, which means there's two parts. There's a sexual accelerator or the sexual excitation system, which notices all the sex-related stimuli in the environment. And it sends that turn-on signal we're all so familiar with. Well, many people are familiar with. And then at the same time, there's brakes that notice all the good reasons not to be turned on right now. So this is everything that is in your environment that you can see, here. hear smell, touch, or taste. And also it's everything in your brain that you carry around with you that you think, believe, or imagine. And it sends the turn off signal. And arousal is very fundamentally the turning on of the ons and also the turning offs of the offs. Pleasure is actually mediated by just a handful of tiny little, they're called hedonic hotspots in your emotional brain. And it sends like the feel good fireworks of like, oh, ooh, that feels really good. Ooh, I like that. So pleasure is innate and readily accessible to us from as soon as we're born. And it's about enjoying. And then there's desire, which is not the same thing as pleasure. There is clearly a relationship between pleasure and desire. We want things that in the past we have learned feel good, but they are not the same thing.
0: It's amazing to look back and think about how many of these phrases just bleed into one another. I only became familiar with the differences myself around seven years ago, when I started working in sexual health. And this interchangeability can lead to misunderstandings in the bedroom. So many people still think that getting wet or getting an erection automatically means that person is experiencing desire, which isn't true at all. And it certainly doesn't ensure they're feeling pleasure. Rebecca Lucy Taylor is a musician and writer. You might know her as self-esteem. Her most recent album was literally called Prioritise Pleasure, and she's been unpacking these topics in a very public and vulnerable way. So many of us have different forms of misinformation, trauma or denial woven into our sexual stories.
2: Pleasure to me has been such a long journey to navigate, but shame, not in a sexual sense, it's like shame that I'm not being more fun at the thing that you want me to be fun at, or I'm not staying for another drink when someone's begging me to do that. All, all these things, expectations of woman that has ruined my life, I realised. So like pleasure to me is very much like doing what you want ultimately. And that's because when I was a kid, I've got amazing parents, but they were a product of their, you know, bringing and so and so on. And I'm from Rotherham. And it was all really there was so little indulgence. I mean, sex didn't, there was no, I think my mum still doesn't know I've done it. (laughs) Like, it wasn't chastised and they've never, you know, they have accepted exactly who I am, but I have never talked about it in my life to anyone of my family. It did some damage on me for a long time, because I was like, is it bad?
0: Our understanding of pleasure starts from a really young age. So when it's missing from the narrative at home, it can have a profound effect on the ways we live our lives. Or even, like Rebecca, it can lead to thinking pleasure is bad or sinful altogether. And there's not really many other places that we can learn about this stuff. Despite the relationships and sex education curriculum getting updated in 2019, there is still no mention of the word pleasure, which I find so bizarre. Rekhaya is a sex educator, and I wanted to know how important she thinks being taught about pleasure is.
1: Super important, because... I believe that our preconceived notions of pleasure is so warped and I'm just realising more and more how regressive this whole romanticization of, like, spontaneity is. You need to actually, like, communicate. You need to speak about what you want and what you like. That's why I believe that pleasure is, like, is super important when it comes to speaking about sex because that's where I find the conversations are mainly centred around it's mainly centred around communication
0: when we're not taught this stuff at school and the other places where we learn about pleasure are shrouded in shame and negativity it can make things tricky we get to adulthood and we suddenly find ourselves in this position where we're expected to be super aware of our desires and the kind of sex we want to have but none of us really have a roadmap for it i personally think that pleasure needs to be part of our formal sex education. But I wanted to hear Rakaya's thoughts. I think it should be self-taught, but I feel like what
1: should be taught should just more be about the communication aspect of it and like consent and stuff like that. Because I don't know why, but people just assume that when you talk a lot during sex or like when you plan stuff or when you schedule in stuff like that just makes things really unexciting. And people just think that it's boring sex but I feel like if we normalise stuff like that and maybe it's not necessarily teaching young people how to experience pleasure but more like teaching them how to go about figuring it out on their own.
0: I'm not suggesting going into schools and being like hey here's how to directly stimulate your clitoris.
1: Well that's the thing that's what parents and conservatives that's what they think that we're going to do which is just a complete lie but it's more of just normalising it and it's more of just letting young people know that it's OK, and that pleasure isn't just orgasms, there's so much more to it, and it's OK to explore that for yourself. So I do believe that it is self, it should be self-taught because they have to go and do that themselves. But at the same time, I do believe that young people need some form of guidance.
0: How can we teach consent without talking about pleasure? Currently, Consent education is almost exclusively about what happens when consent goes wrong. From a professional and personal perspective, I know how important that is to focus on, but it often isn't even mentioning the fact that consent is about communicating what you want just as much as what you don't want, which I think has created a culture where we're taught to strive for non-dangerous sex rather than good sex. It's not about denying the more challenging aspects, but I really believe we should be starting these conversations with the positives. The sex ed we receive at school is unlikely to cater to all the sex we're going to have through our lives. And this is particularly true for queer and trans people. Kenny Ethan Jones is a writer and advocate. I wanted to know if pleasure was discussed when he was growing up.
4: Never. Like, so to start, like I went to an all girls school, uh, Catholic, by the way. And so that just conversation just did not happen. All I had is a framework of understanding like sex was either porn or my male friends. And they just are not the perfect examples of being like 15 year old boys and be like, I want to do this and I want to do that. So I just didn't really understand it. also being trans, I didn't know what my sex life was going to look like. I just had no framework. Like I remember not even understanding like sexual health wise, the risks while having sex. And the first time that I went to a clinic and I said to them, I explained I'm trans, they gave me both tests for men and women and said do both because even they didn't understand. And I was like, if they don't understand, how the fuck am I? You know, I wish there was so much more, especially for me at a younger age, because like, I felt like I really didn't, I didn't enjoy sex because I didn't really understand what was happening in me Like I knew it was, that there was pleasure to it, but everything else just felt like an unknown.
0: Throughout history, lots of religious ideology often emphasises the importance of chastity, virginity and purity, to the point that all of this becomes ingrained in secular culture as well. An example I heard time and time again when I was teaching sex ed is the notion that a vagina gets looser the more times someone has sex. It's biologically absurd, but it really speaks to how we've been taught to demonise people, especially women, for having and enjoying sex. When it comes to queer sex education, we are starting to see change. It's now a required part of the sex ed curriculum, and I'm confident that at some point pleasure will be too. But this doesn't help those of us who've been through this already. As we've explored throughout this series, the messages we grew up with have a huge impact on the rest of our lives. And this isn't stuff we can just change overnight. When shame is so interwoven with our perceptions of sex, It feels incredibly hard to feel worthy of experiencing pleasure. We have a lot to learn from each other's experiences of pleasure. They can be a reminder that, in the words of Emily Nagoski, we are all different, we are all the same, we are all normal.
5: You may have heard of the podcast Juicy Scoop. Wondered what it is? Why aren't you listening? Well, I'm its host. Created it. Been doing it for seven years
0: Disability is one of the things that majorly impacts conversations about pleasure. When I was working at Brooke, I taught sex ed in schools where pupils had additional needs and learning disabilities. Time and time again, we came up against resistance for incorporating pleasure into these lessons. Because many of the adults desexualised and infantilised the young people with disabilities in their life. I've also been involved with SHADA, the Sexual Health and Disability Alliance, And learned so much through them about the legal and social struggles people with disabilities can face when it comes to accessing and experiencing sexual pleasure.
6: I'm Eliza, I'm a disabled content creator online and I make content all about disability awareness and LGBTQ plus positivity. My pronouns are they them and I'm all about opening up the conversation around disability and education. I have a variety of different conditions and they affect me in Lots of different ways. Um, So one of them affects pretty much every part of my body. It causes me to dislocate regularly. It causes me to be really tired. It causes widespread pain. So as you can imagine, that means that everything in my body is affected all the time. And it's definitely affected my sex and sexual pleasure for sure. I kind of just adapted it to me. So I don't have sex as often as I used to and I'm okay with that but when I do I make sure that it's really important to me and whether or not that's solo sex or partnered sex that both I kind of have less now because of my conditions but I just make it work for me so if it's with my partner we just communicate we talk to each other what can we you know do to make it more comfortable can we use different toys different products to kind of help and um, because I can experience quite a lot of pain as well within sex so We do everything to kind of reduce that as much as possible so that it's enjoyable for both of us. And kind of same with solo sex as well. I try different things and ensure that, you know, if I'm not in the mood, that it's also okay. I think it's always important to remember that it's different for every disabled person. And some people, you know, their condition doesn't affect
0: it. But for me, it definitely does. So I kind of,
6: yeah, just communicate that and we've found
0: our own way. It's okay to deprioritize sex and pleasure in your life. I don't want people listening to this episode to come away from it thinking that they need to dive headfirst into pleasure and be striving to experience as much of it as possible. Because the act of recognising that you don't want to or aren't able to be sexual in that moment, there's empowerment in that recognition, which is kind of pleasurable in itself. When we discuss pleasure, lots of people jump to explicitly sexual pleasure. Genital stimulation, penetration, orgasm. But by focusing on these acts, we lose emphasis on sensuality, which is a massive part of sex and pleasure. Pleasurable partnered sex for me doesn't focus solely on genitals. It's about experiencing my partner and my body as a whole. It's the feeling of someone's breath on my skin, the act of squeezing and being squeezed, having all my senses engaged and feeling connected in the moment. By prioritizing this, I think we can transform our attitudes to sex and pleasure. We often build up such high expectations for sex. Obviously, I want us all to be having fun, pleasurable sex, if, when and how we want to. But the pressure that sex has got to be amazing every time is stifling and can build up a lot of worry in our minds that prevents us from truly enjoying ourselves. I like to think about sex like chatting to a friend. Sometimes it's a quick catch-up. Sometimes it's a rambly, deep and vulnerable chat. Sometimes you're in a playful mood, sometimes more thoughtful. But importantly, all these chats are valid and the diversity of them is actually what makes them special. Sex is a form of communication in itself. So why can't we think of it with this same kind of variety too?
6: Every time I have sex, it doesn't have to be amazing. It doesn't have to be the hottest thing because... For me, when I'm having sex with my partner, it's about having that connection. And if it's not working one time, it's okay. And I think it's kind of being kind to yourself on that because sometimes I can kind of feel really guilty and be like, I'm in too much pain or you know, I'm just not in the mood now and I should be. But it's actually just being kind to that part of yourself. Because I think sometimes we're told that a bit in films that it must be perfect at all times. And you know, it's not, it can be messy and all over the place and and that's that's okay. And being kind to yourself with that as well.
0: This takes a lot of bravery because most of us spend our adolescence being told the complete opposite of what Eliza has just said. The amount of bullying that went on when I was at school, when someone made a so-called mistake during sex, someone not shaving their pubes, someone making a weird noise or coming too quickly. There was social fear when I started having sex because everyone around me was treating it almost as something that you win or lose at. A lot of this was modeled off the porn that we were watching. There tends to be a very prescriptive order in which sex happens in mainstream porn, which leaves very little room for exploration into what actually feels good for you. And along with that, some sex acts that feel pretty good for a lot of people were really stigmatised. Leanne runs Polyphilia, an online platform talking about polyamory.
2: I never felt that I had any particular insecurities about my vulva in general, but then I feel like there must have been some subconscious messaging that kind of seeped into my head somehow because I remember like in my early relationships, I was like giving like a lot of oral sex, but I, for my first boyfriend, we were together for a year and we were sexually active for three months. And in that three months, I only asked for oral sex from him once. I don't know why, when it came to this one thing, it never occurred to me that I could just like ask for what I wanted. Perhaps it was also like a vulnerability because, like speaking to a lot of people who have vulvas, a lot of them feel really insecure about the idea of someone going down on them, and they feel that vulnerability um, if someone is kind of giving them pleasure.
0: While pleasure is not just contained in our genitals, there is a particular shame that is attached to how we feel about them. In a survey by Refinery Twenty Nine. of respondents had concerns about the appearance of their vulva. And if we're not comfortable with our own body parts, how can we even begin to take ownership of our pleasure and what feels good? So where does this shame about our genitals and pleasure come from? And what can we do about it?
3: On the day you're born, there was no shame. There was no cultural stigma against feeling pleasure. There was no one telling you that any parts of your body were dirty or bad or didn't belong to you. It was just this, like, beautiful potential space. And then people start planting ideas about bodies and shame and love and stress and safety and the erotic. And some people, I guess, get kind of lucky with nothing but, like, you have permission to experience all the pleasure your body is capable of and permission not to experience pleasure when it is not available to you. But a lot of us get trapped with some really toxic crap. This stuff didn't get planted consciously by almost anybody. So even recognizing that it's something that got planted is a little bit of a project. I highly recommend that everybody go look directly at their genitals, spend some time looking with curiosity and compassion. But if you're a person who even just the idea of doing that is not okay, start with the other peripheral parts of your body. Even people who've been taught that masturbation is sinful, they can probably map out some parts of their bodies that they have permission to touch They're allowed to touch their hands. They're allowed to touch their belly. They're allowed to touch their knees and their feet. So you can explore sensation in all those other body parts. If it's too difficult to access pleasure in other ways, access pleasure in ways that are less stigmatized, that you didn't learn were unacceptable.
0: In our first episode about nudity... We spoke about this very similar idea of how alarming it is how little we're encouraged to connect to ourselves. How do we know what feels safe and nice if we don't have a good understanding of who we are and what our bodies are like? This isn't easy because we've all grown up with a lot of shame connected to our bodies and our pleasure. And this shame is intentional. It has been created to control and silence people, particularly those of us with marginalised identities. Sex historian Dr Kate Lister explained how the white Western lens of sexuality has erased the many ways varied cultures embrace pleasure.
6: Sexual attitudes have varied vastly over time and culture and space, what's interesting is because it's really the one thing as well, no matter how different it gets, is it also kind of remains the same because we, we want an orgasm, we feel horny. But what the West did fantastically well when we walked around just deciding we were in charge of everything is suppressing all of this. Suppressing it, making sure it couldn't happen, telling people it was wrong, retraining people that they should experience and understand sexual shame in a way that they hadn't before. And because of that, a lot of the records have been destroyed. There's a lot of work going on now to try and recover it. But yeah, that was one of the things that we did fantastically well. We went around the whole place shaming everybody for having having sex, unfortunately.
0: This is just one of many examples of how colonialism has completely controlled how we relate to ourselves and each other. This stuff eats its way into all parts of our lives, particularly the intimate and vulnerable parts. Obviously, so much needs to be done to reshape these narratives, but the first step is naming it and confronting it head-on. We can't talk about pleasure, without talking about orgasms. They are not the same thing, and we can all experience pleasure without an orgasm being involved. They can be a source of great joy as well as anxiety and panic. I started exploring solo sex in my early teens and first had partnered sex when I was 15, but it took me until I was 20 to experience my first orgasm. I remember feeling like everyone in the world was at this wonderful orgasm party and I couldn't get an invite. It felt lonely and shameful. And I felt really let down by my body because it wasn't doing this wonderful thing that looked like it was really easy to do. This did come from porn, but way more from depictions of sex in TV and film. And it was also massively about the people I was having sex with. Up until I was 20, I was having sex with people who really didn't care about my pleasure. And what was I doing while having sex with these people? I was faking orgasms. Am I proud of it? No. That it felt just like what was expected. Ironically, it was about taking the pressure off experiencing orgasm and not seeing that as the pinnacle of sex. That actually meant I was relaxed enough to start having them. Eliza has their own experience with deprioritizing orgasms.
6: I think that we hold a lot onto orgasm, and there, you know, there have been times where I felt that like pressure to be like, oh, you know. I've got to orgasm, that's what you do. But I think for me, it can be really hard to orgasm with my conditions, particularly if I'm feeling quite tired or not 100% like myself. And I find that I need to be really feeling like it and powerful and stuff for me to be able to orgasm. Um, But I think it's the other aspects of pleasure that are just as important. And also the other aspects of touch as well. Uh, I actually work with a physiotherapist who kind of works a lot with my bladder and also we talk a lot about sex and she gives me exercises on what to do to help me to increase pleasure and it's just all about spending time with myself getting to know my body and those moments which can be so intimate with myself they're not even sexual in a way but there's still that pleasure of feeling connected with my body and I don't think that orgasms even come into that but those can be the times where I feel the most relaxed and the most pleasure in myself and the most comfortable.
0: When we're chatting about this sort of stuff, it's really easy to think about sexual pleasure existing in a vacuum. That isn't the case. I asked Emily if we can fully connect to pleasure while feeling stressed.
3: Short answer, no. The very short nerd version of the answer is that when you are in a highly stressed state, when your brain is in the fight or flight, flee, fawn something is wrong, we need to fix it, oh no, state of mind. There's literally a part of your brain that shifts. It's called the nucleus accumbens shell affective keyboard. When you're in a calm, happy, blissful, peaceful, relaxed state, 90% of this affective keyboard is tuned to interpret the sensations it receives as pleasurable, to be explored with curiosity. Imagine any sensation at all, including one people don't tend to like often, like tickling. If you're in the right context, this part of your brain is literally tuned to be like, yeah, okay, cool. When you're in a that stressed out state of mind, 90% of the affective keyboard is tuned to perceive just about any sensation as something to be avoided as a potential threat. And when you are stuck in a state of overwhelm, exhaustion, stress response, response, feeling like you are unsafe in an unsafe world, your brain gets stuck in a place where it cannot interpret sensations as pleasurable.
0: i found that I can tell where I'm at in my general mental health by the way I respond to sex. Sometimes I won't even have acknowledged feeling stressed or anxious until I'm in a sexual space. We need to be more forgiving of this, for ourselves and other people. Allowing myself to deprioritize sex was at first really hard, but now feels empowering. We are not sexual beings all the time.
3: If you're a person who does not feel more interested in sex when you're stressed, overwhelmed, exhausted, depressed, anxious, lonely, experiencing repressed rage, we've all got it. But you would like to use some sort of like body connection as a way to care for yourself and return to a sense of groundedness inside your own body. I would say masturbate in a way that is not erotically focused. Touch your own body in all the different parts.
0: This episode does focus a lot on women's pleasure because historically there is significantly more shame and restrictions on it, to the point of flat out denying its existence. That is really important to address but I do believe that putting men into this conversation is crucial in terms of us understanding the wider context. It's really easy to look at men's pleasure and think that they have it easy, but there's more going on under the surface. It can end up being oversimplified, to the point where it's almost seen as a caricature. There's little space for vulnerability or curiosity, which impacts everybody. With the amazing rise in conversations about women and non-binary people's pleasure, men have tended to be left out of the conversation.
4: Like, basically, on my Instagram, it's all women. It's literally all women talking about sexual pleasure and, you know, showing showcasing their best toys and things like that. And it's so lovely to see, but you're right, I don't see it happening with men. Specifically, I don't see it ever happening with trans men. For me, the reason to why, like, I didn't necessarily want to talk about sex and pleasure was because I was still kind of finding it for myself. And I think that might be the case for a lot of men, specifically trans men. It's just, like, you haven't gotten to the point where... You know you feel comfortable with talking about and i think men are just very like passive with things like that just kind of like well this is what happens this is how i'm gonna have sex and don't actually kind of have the want to to try different things sex toys and sexual pleasure is more seen as like a feminine quote-unquote feminine thing to do rather than actually this is just for everybody like you should get to feel good during sex like you should seek out more pleasure I mean, this goes into a larger conversation around, like, actually, when you start to make things gender-inclusive and genderless, actually, what tends to happen is people just do what they like rather than focusing on the labels of things. And so, yeah, I feel like if sex toys were to be genderless and, you know, it just aligned with what body parts you have, I feel like that was a large part of what stopped me from buying toys because it was all women, women, women. And I was like, well, I'm not a woman, so I'm not going to buy this. Fuck you. And it wasn't like their fault because obviously back in the day that weren't a conversation that we was having but it's just yeah it just i feel like if you just put it all on one page and said try what you think works for you i think people would choose a lot more different things to what they're choosing now basically
0: i am one of those people who is brandishing sex toys on social media and although it can come across as a bit oversimplified i do think it can have value There's still so much shame around the use of sex toys. For many people, it's all whispered conversations and hiding things away in bedside table drawers. Seeing someone confidently talk about pleasure is one of the many things that's helping to normalise it. It's always nice to be reminded about the ways that pleasure goes beyond sex. Pleasure, of all forms, can be a huge source of guilt. I spent a lot of last year listening to Rebecca's album, Prioritise Pleasure. And it allowed me to reflect on this guilt in a way I'd never really done before. And like Rebecca, I'm ready to say fuck you to the guilt and really genuinely start focusing on having a pleasurable time in all parts of my life.
2: Like, if I think about pleasure, right, to me, what is pleasure? Sex, food, sleeping, stuff, sparkly shit, I don't know. And all of those things that have been sold to me as bad and wrong, and you should do less of it. Like my whole life. And not my parents, society, like, but the, the the human condition has told me that that's fine in moderation. What if those things aren't bad? And what if you are just put, you are put here to enjoy yourself? <laughs> and that's really hard to, to understand. We've been taught so completely differently. Pleasure, it doesn't have to be in a screaming orgasm that you think women have. Like, the amount of women I know who sex is not about their pleasure at all. Like, it starts there and it ends with, like, don't go to the hen do, you can't afford. <laughs> if you don't want it, just say, you know, communicate to the friend and say, I'm really sorry, but this is how I feel. Uh, you know, it's the most important thing in the world to me because it's, I don't wake up every day thinking, oh, fuck this. Which we all deserve to feel, I think. So much of my life changed when I started really asking myself, do
0: I want to? I think for many people, there still needs to be a shift to looking at pleasure as an exciting possibility and something we deserve, rather than something that is full of shame and secrecy. I don't see that acknowledged enough. I just want people to be able to try and be kind to themselves and realise how impactful this is. Taking that time to really investigate the landscape of your body is amazing, however that looks for you. I wanted to end with pleasure because it's kind of the running theme of the whole series. We exist in a world that makes it quite hard to access pleasure in a shame-free and carefree way. Through making this whole series, I've been reminded about the importance of owning pleasure, grasping it with both hands and doing that in a way that feels really genuine for you. These intimate parts of our lives look and feel different to all of us. I want to celebrate that, and for us to feel more unique and less alone in venturing out into the unknown. It's about finding pleasure in being curious about who we are and what we are. Throughout the course of making this series, I've reflected on some of the most joyful parts of my life, as well as looking at some of the moments of pain and challenge. I've made changes in the way that I see myself and the world around me, and all of that has been through having curious and intuitive conversations with the wonderful people you've heard. I hope in listening to it, that's been reflected in your own life. I want to genuinely thank you for coming on this journey with me. It has been, no pun intended, a pleasure. In Touch was hosted by me, Ruby Rare. It was produced by B. Duncan with executive producer Hannah Walker-Brown. The production assistants were Rory Boyle and Mars West. We want to say a massive thank you to all the contributors throughout this series for their time, knowledge and energy. This is a Broccoli production.